Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I talked with Priyanka Bakaya from Renewology, which is located in Salt Lake City. So we recorded today's episode using a Zoom conversation, which was great, and Zoom is not paying us to say that. Today's episode is number two of three of our special series for the Disruptive Innovation Festival from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. So we talked with Priyanka about the incredible technology that Renewology is applying to plastic recyclables. Um, I won't say any more about it now. You'll hear about it on the podcast. Before we begin, as always, thank you for listening to Future Out Loud. If you're not already subscribed to the Future Out Loud podcast, you can do that in places like iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud or Google Play. Anywhere that you listen to podcasts, you can subscribe to Future Out Loud. And you can also tell your friends about the Future Out Loud podcast. We would love to hear from you. Uh, You can tweet at us at Future Out Loud or you can find us on Facebook at Future Out Loud. You can also check out all of our episodes on our website, futureoutloud.org. And now, on with Priyanka Bakaya and Renewology for the 2017 Disruptive Innovation Festival. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Heather. Hi, Priyanka. Hi. Thank you so much for being with us on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. So this is... uh, as you know, as listeners should know, this is for the Disruptive Innovation Festival. And uh, your company, well, it had a name change and now it's called Renewology, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. How, what does Renewology do? Um, so Renewology, our mission is to renew waste. And um, we've started on focusing on with the plastics because plastics is you know, a huge issue. Um, only 9% of plastics get recycled in the US currently. And it's, you know, it's a real pity because either they're entering landfills or they're entering oceans. And so what we've developed is a proprietary process for chemically recycling plastics back into new products. Um, because you know, the challenge, the reason why recycling rates are low is because traditional recycling is very um, difficult with um, plastics because you need pure streams of plastics in order to be able to recycle. So um, so the unique thing about our process is we can take completely mixed, dirty, contaminated streams of these plastics and because we're taking them back to their basic molecular structure, it doesn't matter how mixed they are um, because we're just breaking down those carbon chains to take them back to their basic building blocks. How far do you go with that? Are you getting back down to sort of really basic sort of uh, methane type blocks or are you sort of... Yeah, so I mean basically how the process works is um, plastic is typically like these very long carbon chains, thousands, and um, we're breaking down the chains. And so we can make products, so for instance, diesel is C12 to C20, so if we make a diesel product, you know, we're breaking it down to that size. Um, we can make all kinds of petrochemical products, basically. And, you know, some of these products can be made um, into new plastics um, as well. So that's sort of the um, beauty of it is that you can 
you know, using the basic molecular structure, make all types of new products out of it. So, wow. so I, I'm going to get a little techie and, and yeah. tell me when it's proprietary. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so obviously, sort of, um, there are quite a few technical hurdles to doing this, which is probably why people haven't done it in the past. I mean, everything from cross-linking, which makes it really hard to um, degrade things, um, all the way down to the energy input. So, I, is there anything you can sort of say about at least the, the nature of the tech you're using and whether you're using a catalytic approach or whatever? Yeah, no, um, you know, it took us many, many years to develop this. So I graduated from MIT in 2011. And, you know, we now have a commercial scale system here in Salt Lake City. We're building our next one in Canada. But, you know, it took like five, six years to get um, things commercialized. And we tested all types of catalysts along the way. But really, um, you know, what we found in terms of getting the right energy payback um, and so that it's really energy efficient is using a continuous process um, where you're able to just continuously process the plastic um, and recycle some of the energy that's being generated back. So some of the, that natural gas that's coming out, recycling it to heat the process. Mm -hmm. um, and that is really sort of what allows us to be able to make it really cost effective. So we get like 52 units of energy out for every one unit of energy we're putting in. And that's really just because we've developed this continuous process and that's you know not a trivial thing to have developed um, there's lots of hurdles in, in making it continuous um, people who previously done this had only really done batch processes and that's why it was never efficient um, but in order to be efficient it needs to be automated and continuous and those are sort of the parts of our proprietary process which have made it possible yeah wow yeah so now you said you have a commercial scale set up now how are you, I mean, are you, have you commercialized this? Like, what are you doing and how are you, what are the words? There, there are words to go with that. Yeah, so, um, so the system that we've um, developed here, so in Salt Lake City, it processes 10 tons of plastic waste per day. And from 10 tons, we generate about 2,500 gallons um, of, you know, petroleum products, fuels. And um, basically, you know, in Salt Lake, our, the, our main source of plastic comes from the MRFs, the material recovery facilities. So what they do is they pull out um, number one and number two plastics typically. So water bottles, milk bottles, that type of thing. Um, and then they're left with this three through seven stream. Um, and this is, you know, a stream that is, you know, all over the country, any MRF we go to, this is sort of their problem stream. Um, it's both the MRF film and then that three through seven stream where it just doesn't have enough value to keep pulling it out, um, right. recycling it. So we take that, um, that's their waste product and we feed that into our system. And so for our next system, so the next system we're building is in Canada, in Nova Scotia currently, um, building for a customer there. And so they're a waste company and we're going to be putting our system on their site. And that's sort of our go-to-market strategy going forward is to just really like locate where these large amounts of plastic are being generated because um, it doesn't make sense to, you know, sure. A really practical question, are they paying you to take the waste away or are you paying them for the waste? Yeah, so we just take it um, for free and the market has changed tremendously like since we started. So, um, you know, soon after we started, China had their um, green fence ban um, and this year, you know, there's the, uh, you know, 
sort of new, even tougher regulations on um, especially these low value plastics are very hard to move. So, you know, I think right when we got started, they might have expected like, you know, maybe like two cents a pound for this type of plastic. But now there's just literally no markets for, for it. So they would have to pay to landfill it. But we've just kind of kept it as a free system um, where, you know, we don't pay them, they don't pay us. Right. For those yes. okay. but, um, but, you know, the exciting thing about having it at their side and selling it to them is that, you know, this is a way for them to generate um, on, an ongoing revenue stream from this type of plastic. Um, cool. And that way they're incentivized to um, do something valuable with the plastic instead of, you know, landfilling it. Sure. So just thinking about the circular economy-ness of this, so they are generating, basically, you're your system is generating for them a petroleum product, so a fuel, yes? Mm -hmm. and so then they, that fuel is being put in house for their own applications. Um, so, you know, they might be using it in Nova Scotia, they use a lot of fuel oil and heating oils, they're gonna use a lot of that internally. Um, mm -hmm. And then the rest, they would be like selling locally, some marine fuels get used a lot um, in Nova Scotia, so they're looking at the marine fuel market. So there's, you know, different applications, both in-house and then um, also in the community as well. And, you know, if they're near, um, if customers are near a refinery where they make plastics, that's, you know, another option is to send it to, um, to a refinery like that to go into making new, you know, types of plastics. So, right, I, in fact, actually, that's exactly what I was gonna ask. I was just about to ask whether it is just fuel products or whether you're using these as precursors for further plastic materials. Yeah, and it just all depends on the distance to a plastic refinery. So Dow, for instance, is you know, really interested in this technology and they're trying to get one of these systems close to one of their refineries so that they can you know, show that the plastics that they're creating can also be you know, chemically recycled back into making yeah. plastic. So do you have a sense as well as what the value add is compared to, or if you're looking at, at producing fuels which are going to be burnt as mm -hmm. a compared to precursors to plastics, which are going to be a lot more durable? Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of just sort of our operating costs, it costs us about um, 25 to $30 a barrel to produce the fuel. So it's definitely competitive with getting it out of the ground. I mean, the advantage is plastics already being through the refining process, so it's already has no sulfur, it has no nitrogen, it doesn't have any of that those contaminants. So you get a really <laughs> you get a really clean fuel out of it, um, which is you know an advantage. And then um, you know so, uh, so you know your cost of getting the material is you know free. Um, so compared to getting the um, oil from the ground, it's definitely um, you know both from an environmental perspective and a cost perspective. You know it makes a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. So interesting. I'm just trying to think of, so is it theoretically possible then using your technology to avoid pulling any more fossil fuels out of the ground and to just create, you know, whatever Constant, power we constantly need? Constantly recycle hydrocarbons. Yeah. yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah, I mean, 300 million tons of plastic get produced each year. So, you know, the biggest challenge is just capturing that all and putting it in the right place. Um, mm -hmm. The problem with plastic is it just never disappears and people, you know, are like, oh, we throw it away, but it sits there in landfills, it doesn't decompose or, it, you know, huge amounts into the environment and oceans. Um, so, you know, really to get rid of plastic, you just need to, it's like anything, like you decompose it to its basic building blocks. And so that's yeah. what you're doing is taking it back to what it came from. Okay. Um, 
Yeah. So, I mean, that would be amazing if we could renew all of it. Um, but obviously it's just, you know, a lot gets lost along the way. Right. So. Sure. So, but what is really interesting with this from the circular economy perspective is this idea of bringing energy in. So for instance, you could have the model where you bring in renewable energies to break this down into those constituent atoms. And mm -hmm. then you've got the building blocks to start completely afresh with building new stuff. And mm -hmm. to me, that seems to get completely to the essence of the circular economy. If you're really going to do this at an atomic and molecular scale. Right. Yeah. And um, I mean, you know, obviously like we need to stop, like move in the direction of, stop using single-use plastics to begin with. So much of it can be avoided um, just by consumers being more conscious. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, some of it's just very hard to avoid. And, you know, at least this can be a solution um, for those plastics that are, you know, not necessarily single-use, but have important applications. Yeah. Um, so something you mentioned earlier, and we mentioned this, or I talked about it in the previous um, podcast, I think, because it's one of those things I'm obsessed by. I, at the moment, if you're recycling stuff, mm -hmm. uh, you, if you're doing it in the home, it has to be clean. Um, otherwise, it's preferable for it to be cleaned. And there's this whole thing about the problems of throwing away dirty stuff, um, stuff with food still on it. So I'm assuming from what you say, actually, your process gets around that. I don't have to be manipulative yes. about washing yeah. all of my recycle stuff. Yeah, no, we, we handle plenty of contaminated things. And basically what happens to anything that isn't plastic in our process is, um, so typically we'll get about 70 to 80% will come out as the liquid fuel product. Mm -hmm. And then um, about 20% will become that sort of natural gas that's being recycled to heat the process and then there's always a few percentage char and that char is basically any labels food that is still remaining from the plastic um, right. and that's just sort of an inert like non-toxic char that um, can be used as like an aggregate and, um, yeah yeah so, so you um, see that every single stream coming out has got a use mm -hmm. yeah so does that's, that's and that's the beauty about plastic it's like a hundred percent energy to begin with so um you know people are always like shocked that you get so much energy out but it's like it's basically a battery um, that you're throwing away oh interesting that's an interesting way to think about it it is it mm -hmm. is Yes, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Does this, Andrew, relieve some of your My recycling anxiety. anxiety? Yeah, yeah. So I, <laughs> I have like, um, recycling anxiety. Yes, it, yes, it does, because it means that I don't have to get obsessed with sort of if I've got something which I can't clean. So I, actually, it definitely I, helps with my recycling anxiety. That's for sure. Right. So, so, so actually, the worst is where you've got something like a ketchup bottle, and you know it's going to take you yeah. hours to clean every little bit of ketchup out of it. So you oh, think. Yeah throw it in the regular trash or do I recycle it? What do I do? You recycle it is the answer. <laughs> yes, but yes. this makes it a lot easier. Well, right. <laughs> now that now that's the answer right, is right. you recycle it. Yeah, and the problem is like, I've been to like dozens of these MRFs around the country and you know, you see like what you put in the recycling bin versus what they actually pull out. And it's very depressing. Like when I now put things in the recycling bin, I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is ever going to make it. Yeah. <laughs> any product, you know? um, so, so the whole system, it's, you know, we really need to be thinking about, you know, how do we better separate at the home? And I, you know, I think the way that Europe does it where, you know, just like letting people take that extra minute into sorting into more streams, I really think that that's just the direction. Right. Like, because these recyclers, um, you know, they want to say they can accept everything, but in reality, it's, it's very hard to pull out these streams um, individually. Yeah. So, so one thing that we've been working with um, with uh, Dow is they 
introduced this thing called the energy bag program and essentially what it is is a bag that goes in your regular recycling bin and you put in like any of like the films and like the candy wrappers and chip bags and all, all that kind of stuff that you know really adds up that everyone uses every day that would never get pulled out of the recycling bin right. um, and so they give the bag they've done it in a few communities they give it to the residents and then you know once it goes gets to the MRF it's an orange bag so it gets pulled out first thing um, at the beginning of the line and then it can be sent to like a facility like ours and I think you know if we like move in that direction where we're you know like educating consumers to take that step um, and say that hey if you're going to be using all these things to make your life convenient just you know take an extra day you know minute out of your day to put right. it in a secret bag in your bin um, but I think we need to head in that direction. This is where the, the innovation side becomes so interesting, though, because it's not always the technological solutions. It's just thinking about how you can do things differently mm -hmm. to reduce that barrier of, of actually moving forwards. Yeah. And you know the technology is trying to make our lives easier, but at the end of the day, it's like, come on, guys, like <laughs> let's just take right. a minute. Like one more minute, yeah. Yeah. Now, so you've got your system running in Salt Lake City. Do you have any like what are your outcomes? Can you give us an idea of it in this span of you know a week, a month, a year, or what have you? I don't even know how you would measure it. How mm -hmm. much um, you know plastic waste have you? diverted from landfills, oceans, otherwise? Sure, yeah, so we have both the large system here in Salt Lake City, and then we have these small units for targeting like ocean plastics. Um, and um, the facility here in Salt Lake, so when it's running at like maximum capacity, we can process up to 10 tons per day. Usually we don't necessarily, you know, get 10 tons per day of plastic. Um, it's actually interesting how, um, you know, getting like 10 tons in one location can actually be quite challenging, which is why we came up with these smaller units to be, um, you know, co-located like, you know, for instance, for these beach cleanups or on boats um, and that type of thing. Um, and, you know, even like mobile units that you can take from place to place um, to collect the plastic if you don't have it um, all at one location. Obviously you get a lot of economies of scale of having it in one location, so you'll have um, you'll have the better economics there, but you know, sometimes you just want a solution. So, you know, for instance, when we're um, collecting plastics in the ocean, um, being able to like convert it into fuel, which you can then run the boat off, you know, it's, it's yeah. just something that's, um, it's small, it's compact, it's there. But yeah, for, um, for every um, 10 tons, we're making 60 barrels of fuel. So when we run for like a few days straight, um, you know, we can make like, you know, in the hundreds of barrels of fuel, yeah. And I, this shows my ignorance. How much does a barrel of fuel weigh? Weigh? Out what the conversion is with starting with ten tons. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So basically, let's see. In terms of weight, are you trying to think of in terms of pounds or? Yeah, or, or, or kilos, or, or, like whatever gives you joy. Yeah, so I, I, I'm just trying to do the mass balance. Yeah, now. I mean, it basically comes out to close to one to one. So okay. when you're doing, um, you know, a thousand um, grams, you're, you're getting almost, um, you know, a thousand. Okay, that's yeah. that's what I was wondering. So, so you so said like two, like a little less than that, but yeah, yeah. it's almost one to one, which is, um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, wow. yeah. Wow. And, and what's the energy overhead of that? 
Um, so yeah, so basically once you get the process started, so you have to um, start with the heating it um, mm -hmm. yep. natural gas from the wall, but once you get it started, you actually generate more natural gas than what you need to heat the process. Um, so that's why um, at the 10 tons per day, we get that 52 to one energy payback ratio. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. It's recycling the energy. Yep, that's pretty impressive. That's incredibly impressive. Now that's, of course, you mentioned that it counts, you know, that that enjoys an economy of scale at mm -hmm. that rate. If you were thinking about a, you know, a mobile unit or maybe a household sized unit, yeah. uh, would you still have that at least one to one, like pay for itself? Yeah, exactly. So at that point, it's sort of like a little bit better than like one to one. Um, but yeah, just like at most two to one or something. But yeah, that's why, you know, if you can get it all in one location, like at these MRFs, it makes sense to do a big scale, but you know, sometimes it's just, you know, not possible and you need to have remote like mobile solutions and it's still better than landfilling it or letting it be in the ocean. Of course, yeah, of course. I mean, how, so how do you see this in your perfect world when you have like taken over the entire world market <laughs> of plastics, right? Um, like, how would this work ideally? Would you expect to see a mobile unit or a household unit in every home and in every place of business? Like, what? How would this work best? Do you think? Yeah, I think if um, if we can, like, from a sort of holistic perspective, I really like the idea of this whole um, giving residents the ability to put things in a bag and then letting it get to the MRF and then it getting to us because I think that, um, you know, an everyday person doesn't necessarily want to be like running an extra appliance, but I think they would take, um, you know, that extra few seconds out to put it in, you know, they're already putting stuff in their recycling bin. It's just sort of a bag in the recycling bin. I think, you know, if consumers can get used to that, um, then, you know, that would really lead to collection rates. Um, going up a lot and it's getting to us um, so i feel like that kind of system like at a holistic level would be the best approach so so i know I, this goes beyond your business model but do you ever think at all of how to incentivize this and i'm thinking about the consumer with that orange bag my um, question exactly right I, what can we do to make them feel good about putting stuff because in that bag right now plenty of people already don't recycle aluminum cans right. that yeah. We obviously know how that works and why that is valuable for society, mm -hmm. right? So how do you get people, yeah, to make this yeah, excited about it and yeah, like having rewards programs and you know, you, you must be familiar with like Recycle Bank and their sort of rewards programs for people who recycle. Yeah, I think, you know, there needs to be like interesting ideas like that and maybe you guys have ideas, but you know, ways to pat people on the back and say that, you know, you get like a coupon for... I was going to say free cinema tickets for every 10, 20 bags that you... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get some sponsors and yeah, get some like exciting rewards. Um, and yeah, I think the Recycle Bank sort of did that um, pretty well in terms of, you know, pairing up with brands and um, yep. trying to find like ways to reward consumers. Um, yeah, I think there could be lots of interesting partnerships like yeah. that. So, so something I find really interesting here as well is you can see how you could really leverage that by putting a company brand on it as well. So if, if you yeah. look at what you do, rather mm -hmm. than this being a generic thing, if it's mm -hmm. tied to a specific company that is actually using that waste and, and recycling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's all kinds of sponsorship opportunities. Now, one thing I didn't ask you about yet is um, you're part of the Risen Incubator. How did you come to that? Yeah, it was um, finally my third mention of Dow, but it was actually the sustainability director at Dow who told me about it. Um, and Phoenix has been like very active in trying to come up with waste innovations and working with ASU on this. Um, and then we'd be we'd been following this for a while and trying to see you know how do we connect with them because you know Utah and Arizona are neighboring states. Um, so I was really excited to see that they were launching the Risen Incubator um, because there's really no incubators targeted at like waste innovation companies um, anywhere. You know, it's something I'd actually thought about like oh that's something that I'd love to start one day when I you know, have copious amounts of time. Um, <laughs> So I was really excited to see that they were doing that um, and you know I reached out and I was like you know we're not in Arizona can we still apply and you know we'd love to be in Arizona so um, you know fortunately I got connected with Alicia and um, you know she's now made the incubator open to companies everywhere because I think she's understood the value in um, you know collaborating with companies like us who are looking to enter um, yeah. Phoenix as well and you know they have a great network in terms of um, all the key stakeholders there at you know the city level and the state level and um, in the waste community as well um, and I think you know we really need um, there's so many players in the waste market which is you know something that makes it you know challenging entering each city is that you know you need to find the right link of people at the city level and state level and you know the private company level and who's operating landfills, who's operating MERVs, the haulers, it's, you know, it's, it's really hard to piece that all together yourself as an entrepreneur. So um, it's definitely been really helpful um, being part of the Risen Incubator and being able to connect the dots um, in Arizona and, you know, getting the support. And, you know, one thing that's unique there is the city does run, um, you know, the uh, MERF there. And so um, they're incentivized, you know, a lot of cities will just outsource this to a private company, but, you know, since they actually operate it themselves, um, you know, they're very hands-on and, you know, interested in finding yeah. uh, the right solutions and being an in the space. Yeah, it's actually quite in interesting and exciting to hear the DAO connection as well. So, I mean, I, I spent a number of years at University of Michigan, so I have mm -hmm. good close connections with, with DAO, but the I fact that they're actually sort of making the connections and joining the dots as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think it's great. I mean, you know, obviously they're the ones making the plastic and it's great to see that they're also, you know, taking a lot of responsibility and finding sustainable solutions um, for that material. So yeah, they have a great team. Yep. So now how did you come, well, so two questions. One, how did you come to be located primarily in Salt Lake City? Mm -hmm. and then Two, when can we expect to see your technology in Phoenix? <laughs> yeah, so we, um, so after MIT, we entered a research and development contract with the University of Utah here. And so we actually um, built our pilot at the University of Utah has sort of like a industrial facility um, where you can do this and did a lot of testing um, there for the first two years. And then after that, we realized that Utah was sort of a great place for us um, in terms of, um, you know, the local business community. So we received um, grants from the state and financing from the city. I think it's a lot like Arizona in that way. Um, you know, just like a very business friendly state and you know, entrepreneur friendly state. Um, and so, you know, we ended up sort of, you know, deciding to make this our home base. 
Um, and yeah, with Phoenix, we're actually right now um, in the running for, they have the Arizona Innovation Challenge. Um, mm -hmm. We'll find out about next month, but yeah, it would, it would be great to, um, you know, be able to get some grant money to set up something in Phoenix. And, you know, we're talking to the city there as well. We're trying to get some people from um, the city's Murph to come up and visit um, our system here and, you know, convince them to give us some space to set something up in Phoenix. So hopefully, fingers crossed, 2018, we'll be able to get the ball rolling on all of that. That's great. How exciting. Yes. Wonderful. Well, yeah. Prim, this is great. I mean, it is, this is really a potentially like a world changing technology. Um, and I don't say that about every technology. So, <laughs> so this is really exciting. I hope that in a year from now, we can have you back on the podcast, but you know, live in our extremely luxurious offices. But this is really great. I, we really, I would love to have you come back and tell us, you know, as this develops, like how your company is scaling and what kinds of impacts you're able to, and what kinds of circular economies you're able to create where there wasn't one before. For sure. No, I'd love that. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. It was, it was great chatting with you guys and also getting ideas about, you know, how to incentivize, um, you know, consumers to also, you know, be more excited about these things. Cause I think that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We are, we are full of ideas. We'll just throw them right at you. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at ASU. Mark Van Hare created our music. Esmeralda Parker is our production assistant. Our website is futureoutloud.org. Subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts.